Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host, and today we are talking pirates that sailed these waters, including the infamous Blackbeard, two lady pirates, and many others. Join us as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Rich Thomas is back with us today to talk pirates. Rich is the author of Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina, at the forefront of American history, and he is also the owner of Hilton Head History Tours here on the island. Rich, welcome back to the show. Jay, my pleasure, as always. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about something that many people have lots of fascinations about, and that is pirates. What was piracy like around Hilton Head in the early days? Well, I mean, pirates were very frequent in these waters, and I, I guess you can say piracy was pretty prolific in the southeast coast of the what became the United States. You know, at the time, there were essentially the, the trading fleets from many of the European countries that regularly sailed up the Bahamas Channel along the coast of Florida up till they hit Port Royal Sound just north of Hilton Head. And at that point, the Gulf Stream took a turn to the east heading back toward Europe. And at that very same juncture, it seemed as though the prevailing westerlies would typically kick in and catch the turn of the Gulf Stream so that, you know, the ships would be able to sail easily back to Europe with a trailing breeze. Well, that made this particular juncture before they got the speed of the Gulf Stream and the speed of a trailing breeze kind of the the last shot for pirates who were looking at those European trading fleets to actually make the attack on the ships. So the waters of Port Royal Sound and the intercoastal waterway area, the many islands that had multiple routes of entrance and egress made this a perfect hiding place for those pirate ships and pirate fleets that would prey on the trading fleets of other countries. So uh, this, this was a very active area. What years are we talking about piracy going on here in the area? Piracy in this, in this part of the world really started in the, in the, in the, 1500s, and you could even say with some of the early French pirates started back in the late 1400s. There are names that aren't necessarily very familiar to uh, people from these parts, but Jean Angot was one. Uh, he was uh, the head of the French Navy at one point, ended up becoming a privateer, and then actually uh, never really made it into the pri- pirate ranks, but very active down here in like the, the late 1400s. You had the English Sea Dogs. Uh, that started coming in. There, that was the name that was given them collectively, and they came in in the early 1500s. You had Dutch corsairs. You had Spanish pirates that were operative here in those early years as well. But the time that most people think about when they're when they're focusing on piracy, uh, whether it's in the southeast coastal area or down in the Caribbean or whatever, is is typically called the golden age of piracy, and and that tends to run anywhere from really 1680 to 1730 or kind of in in those years. Uh, there was a major occurrence in about 1720 that ended up in the capture and hanging of a lot of the most notorious pirates at the time. And many people would say that that was really the end of the golden age when some of the legends came to an end in, on the gallows primarily. But yeah, in those, those years, uh, pretty much were the most heavily 
trafficked pirate and privateering lanes in the waters off of Hilton Head. Looking at the list of pirates that were active in the area, two really popped out to me. One was Blackbeard, probably the most famous, notorious uh, name in in piracy. And also Calico Jack was very active. Tell tell us uh, about those and, and how active they were in the area. The ports of really Charleston, Beaufort, and Savannah in the early days of the colony of South Carolina. So we're, we're really talking, uh, you know, like 1725-ish and even before that, before this was a, an official colony, they were fairly lawless towns and they were havens for pirates because the merchants in those cities tended to be very quick to welcome the pirates to come in and spend the loot that they had just captured on their on their piracy voyages. And for that reason, uh, you know, pirates were relatively free to roam, free to bring their ships into port. There was not a lot of presence from uh, royal patrols from England by that time. And so you had the the feeling that you could almost with impunity ply the waters in any part of this area of the southeast coast that you wanted to without a lot of danger of being captured. You would have people like Blackbeard, whose real name was Edward Teach. He was a pirate who had understudied with Benjamin Hornigold, who was the head of a pirate colony down in the Caribbean. He um, he ended up forming his own pirate fleet fairly early on in his in his career. And he uh, started roaming the coast really from about Cape Cod all the way down to Key West and even as far down as the Dry Tortugas early in his career. Um, He had sailed with the Royal Navy in England. Um, Some people believe that he sailed as a privateer rather than a Navy sailor. And he, he really became a pirate a little bit later in life after he had finished his association with the Navy. And I guess, you know, I, I use the term privateer, and my assumption is that, that most people listening are going to understand the difference between the pirate and the privateer. Essentially, you had a, a pirate was an illegal, illegal meaning unauthorized, robber of ships and the cargoes of the ships. And it didn't depend what countries they were from if you were a pirate. A privateer was someone who was typically licensed or authorized by a government or a seat of government. And they received something called a letter of mark that gave them the authorization to plunder the ships of enemy countries. But a pirate really didn't care what country the ships were from. (laughs) They would just plunder them anyway. So most of what Blackbeard did early on was as a privateer. A sailor who had the license to rob enemy ships from the governors of various provinces from which he sought that authorization. Blackbeard early on was a privateer. Did that give him backing from the Royal Navy if he ran into trouble or how did that work? Well, yeah, I mean, it it actually he was he was not a buccaneer. Uh, So you have three terms, pirate, privateer and buccaneer. We tend to use them almost interchangeably, but they actually were, were different things. So you have the legal legal pirate is the privateer. The illegal pirate doesn't care about who he robs is a pirate. Then you had the buccaneer, and the buccaneer was a term typically reserved for English privateers. And English privateers were very often kind of given the authorization by the crown 
because it was a very inexpensive way for the English Navy to gain forces and strength to use against their enemies at the time. So you would have the English buccaneers that operated in the Caribbean primarily and along the southeast coast who were licensed privateers by the English government to plunder the ships of Spain and Portugal and the Netherlands and depending on the point in time, who they were at war with. So, you know, most of the time, Blackbeard operated as, I mean, in his early career as a privateer. But a bit later on, he started operating without much allegiance to one country or another. He ran afoul of England um, in 1718. And in 1718, he and another pirate who he had joined with, a guy named Steve Bonnet, who was known as the Gentleman Pirate, who was a very frequently seen pirate in this area, um, the two of them ended up laying siege to the harbor in Charleston. And the siege of Charleston resulted in them receiving a ransom uh, for the city in return for freeing a whole bunch of hostages they had captured off boats that were trying to sail out of Charleston Harbor over to England, carrying some very important passengers. What Blackbeard asked for ransom from the city of Charleston was a barrel of mercury because Mercury was a typically much-needed medicine for the crews of pirate ships or privateer ships because it was thought that at the time it was a cure for syphilis and venereal disease. And that was pretty rampant among most pirate crews who uh, lived pretty interesting lives in that regard. And once Blackbeard had finished the siege of Charleston, received the ransom and let the hostages go, he was actually welcomed into the ports in Beaufort and in, in Savannah because he was then armed with a lot of uh, a lot of wealth that he had accumulated prior to the siege of Charleston and you know subsequent to the siege. But he, he was, I would say, probably the most notorious of all the pirates here. A uh, very fearsome man who managed his appearance to strike fear into his opponents. Um, it's said that he, he would uh, take fuses and he would actually braid the fuses into his long black beard and then light the fuses on fire when he was about to confront an adversary or an enemy. And that his, uh, his physical appearance was so fearsome that many people just surrendered without putting up any kind of a fight at all. A lot of people think that he was suffering from tertiary syphilis, a very you know late stage of the disease, and that that interfered a lot with his ability to be an effective commander and led to his lapse of judgment when he took his flagship, the, the Queen Anne's Revenge, which was the largest pirate ship that ever operated in Caribbean and southeastern waters, and uh, ended up running it aground, committing a mortal sin for a pirate captain, which was the marooning of his crew. And he ran it aground up off of Atlantic Beach in North Carolina. Well, he and his buddy, uh, Steve Bonnet were going to receive a royal pardon. Uh, the king, King George, actually offered a pardon to all pirates who would swear to forego the life of piracy in the future, and they were to be given amnesty in return for that. Well, Bonnet and uh, Blackbeard were on their way up to the governor of North Carolina, who was issuing all the pardons for pirates in the Americas. And when he grounded the ship, off of Atlantic Beach, Bonnet believed that they would return after they met with the governor and receive their pardons and free the ship from the grounding at, at a higher tide. Well, what ends up happening is that 
Blackbeard and Bonnet receive their pardons from the governor. Blackbeard departs immediately to head back for the boats. And what he'll end up doing is he'll steal uh, Bonnet's ship called the Revenge, and he'll leave with a hand-picked crew, leaving the rest of about 400 men stranded on a nearby sandbar. And that mortal that mortal sin uh, led – it's a mortal sin because it was against the code of the pirates. And the worst thing a captain could do was to maroon a crew. And so that led to Bonnet and the rest of the crew trying to chase down Blackbeard in the, in the following years. That really wouldn't happen. And, and what, what ended up happening was that Bonnet was um, captured and taken to Charleston and eventually hung. But Blackbeard was kind of sailing off the coast of North Carolina, and it was shortly after the governor of South Carolina had become enraged at the presence of pirates off Charleston. And he sent a um, they sent a, a Royal Navy lieutenant named Robert Maynard on board a Royal Navy patrol ship to hunt down um, Blackbeard. And essentially they found that he was uh, kind of anchored in the mouth of the Cape Fear River, and Maynard's ship uh, went in to trap them in the mouth. Uh, they ended up boarding um, Maynard's ship. Blackbeard's crew boarded Maynard's ship, and Blackbeard and Maynard ended off facing each other in a duel, uh, one pistol in each hand, and as they approached each other, they both fired. Maynard missed I'm sorry, Blackbeard missed his shot, and Maynard's hit the mark and wounded Blackbeard severely. But not so much that he still wasn't able to swing his cutlass and snapped off Maynard's sword blade in the process. Maynard drew back, you know, fearing the mortal blow, and as, and as Blackbeard raised his arm to finish Maynard off, one of the Navy crewmen came up behind Blackbeard and with one swipe of his, his sword slashed Blackbeard's throat. And that was that was Blackbeard's end and demise. Um, as a warning to pirates on his way back from Cape Fear, back to Charleston, Maynard's uh, sloop hung Blackbeard's head from the bowsprit as a warning. And um, it was also the grim trophy of proof that Blackbeard had been executed by the Royal Navy to the governors of both North Carolina and South Carolina. So tell me about Calico Jack. All right. Calico Jack uh, Rackham, famous nowadays because of the the series, the the Black Sails series on Stars Network. Most people had never heard of Calico Jack prior to that. Um, he wasn't a very successful uh, pirate. He was um, not known for his skill in being able to capture and plunder vessels that uh, were his prey. But he became very famous because he had two women members of his crew who were regarded to be among the best fighters in the pirate ranks off the coast of uh, the southeastern uh, United States. He, he basically was um, an English pirate operating in the Bahamas and Cuba during the early 18th century, born uh, in the port of Bristol in the UK, and the seafaring life caught him from an early age. He sailed in the Caribbean and off the southeast coast during the golden age of piracy. The most of his victims were fishing boats and lightly armed trading vessels. He earned the name uh, Calico Jack because of his taste for clothes, and he typically wore things of that brightly colored Indian cloth called calico. He was an up-and-coming pirate during the years when 
piracy was rampant in Nassau, uh, in the Caribbean, and, and it was kind of the capital of a pirate kingdom of sorts. He had served under a guy who was probably the most reviled pirate in our history, and it was a guy named Charles Vane, who pirates hated because of his absolute cruelty and his lack of adherence to any kind of principle whatsoever, especially the pirate's code. Rackham was essentially captured, tried, and hanged in 1720. He was in the port in, in the port of uh, Port Royal, Jamaica, at the time that he was captured and tried. He left the two female members of his crew that he is most famous for, uh, Mary Reed and Anne Bonney. And they were women who fought dressed as men. Pretty interesting story with the two of them, too. The, they had both for different reasons, been raised by parents or a parent who ended up, or a grandmother, actually, in one case, who ended up dressing them as boys in order to be able to benefit from raising the son or an heir of someone who had already passed away. And they got used to that. And when they decided to take the pirate life on, they uh, disguised themselves as men to join the pirate crews. Mary Reed ended up serving under two other uh, pirate captains before she came to Jack Rackham. And Anne Bonney was the daughter of a Charleston merchant, uh, said to be a, a, a real beauty. And she fell in love with this dashing character dressed in these fine clothes. But anyway, the, 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 two, uh, the two women went on to actually survive Rackham um, after, he was, um, after he was hung. Mary Reed disappeared into history. No one really knows what her fate was. But Anne Bonney claimed pregnancy at the time she was to be hanged, and her hanging was postponed. Following that, she was somehow able to escape and managed to return to South Carolina and received an amnesty of sorts. Um, when she was back in her home home grounds. Anyway, uh, that's that's that Jack Rackham. I mean, he was regarded as a not very successful pirate. Walk us through what pirates were actually going after. What was the most valuable thing that they could take from ships? The big prize, obviously, was the Spanish treasure fleets. And there were so many of them cruising in the waters off the southeast coast and in the Caribbean. Gold bullion, silver bullion, those were the big prizes. But there were also um, various other goods that were highly prized in Europe that came from South America, Central America, the Caribbean islands. Uh, you had spices, uh, for instance. Uh, you know, rum was something that was highly prized by pirate crews for more than one reason. If you think that by the mid-1500s and into the late 1500s, and then in the early 1600s, it was a little bit less prominent, but still coming uh, into Europe and as great a volume as it had been during the 1500s. It was just old news by that time. But there was a ship leaving for Spain in the early 1600s at least once a week, and each cargo ship typically had bullion and goods aboard that were worth about $15 million. And when we talk about today's money, that steady flow of treasure from the Central America and Mexico and then the Indies had made Spain the wealthiest country in Europe in the preceding century. But then in the 1600s, you had a lot of the value that shifted to other things like uh, gems, precious gems, hardwoods, animal hides, spices, um, you've always heard of, of pieces of eight. They were silver pieces of eight that 
were brought to the Spanish Main, which was the entire coastal area of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea going down to South America. They were typically, these pieces of eight were were brought by mule train and llama train overland from Bolivia, and they would get typically storehoused near Veracruz. And then coming overland from Acapulco were all of the wares from the Far East that had come over the Pacific Ocean toward Mexico from that direction. And they were all combined in the storehouses at Veracruz and then put on these Spanish treasure ships. So you really had a wide range of things of great value, at least in the European market, that were the target for the pirates. When you think of pirates, you think of the traditional pirate flag, the Jolly Roger. Blackbeard actually had a very unique and interesting flag. Can you describe that for us and what the meaning is? Sure. Calico Jack, actually, Rackham was the guy who was given credit for being the first pirate to fly the Jolly Roger. And the Jolly Roger is the skull and crossbones flag that's normally associated with with the pirate flag. Blackbeard, though, um, had a, a flag that had a picture of a skeleton. And in the right hand of the skeleton was held an hourglass. In the left hand of the skeleton was a dagger or a, some people suggest it looks like a spear. And that spear had drops of blood that were falling from it. And the symbolism of Blackbeard's flag was that the hourglass signified to a potential victim that their time was running out and that they better surrender. Otherwise, their fate would be the fate of the left hand weapon and the drops of blood. It also had a heart. Uh, at the end of the weapon, which was really more or less the shape of the point of the spear. There were feet on the skeleton that weren't normal feet, and the head of the skeleton also had horns. And the cloven feet on the bottom and the horns on the head were supposed to signify that Blackbeard was in league with the devil. So that was um, that was a symbolism of his flag. I think most pirates would much rather have seen the Jolly Roger flying than Blackbeard's flag in an approaching ship. One of the things in the at the rules of piracy. And it talks about the loss of a right arm is 600, loss of the left arm is 500. Why was there a difference in if you lost a leg or an eye in the side, what side that you lost that on? Well, part of that. Part of that relates to, I guess, the perceived value of that particular appendage or body part. Um, And and that was really to, to simply to state up front the risk and the potential reward for the risk in the event of bodily harm to someone who signed on to a pirate crew. The the rules of piracy were really, um, they were essentially uh, a code of conduct that was adopted by the members of the crew once the crew was assembled for a voyage, and they wrote their own. You know, the, the, the codes of conduct that the pirates had, many of them reflect modern laws, uh, especially military laws. They consisted of a dress code, typically no women aboard ships, very, very much a taboo. Some ships even had no smoking rules. And these were all rules that were voted on by the sailors that would be subjected to governance by the rules, you know, at the very outset. And I mean, I even look at it as as the fact that you know, before we had democracy in America, there was democracy among what we considered to be among the most lawless bands of people in the world's history. <laughs> but in fact, they weren't lawless, and they were very much uh, bound by those rules. Uh, 
there were severe penalties for breaking the rules. One of the rules, the, the major element of, of most pirate codes of conduct was that the captain was an electee by all the men of the crew. And the captain could be replaced by a majority vote by the crew at any time. So contrary to kind of popular belief, I think, you have if you had cowardly or brutal captains, they would be pretty quickly voted out of their positions. And very often those captains would be either sent on their way on one of the smaller, less desirable vessels of the fleet, or in certain cases, those captains would be left on uninhabited islands, hopefully, in their case, you know, in their minds, to be picked up by a ship later on, or sometimes when the pirate ship would reach port after abandoning a captain who had been diselected, uh, they would inform um, people at port of that person's location so that they could be picked up. How did the piracy era come to an end? It got to be too intrusive. You know, as, as in most things, economics runs the world. And when piracy began to be too disruptive to the economy of the colonies, I'll speak for the piracy in the southeast coast. Uh, when it got to be too disruptive to the economy of the colonies, the, the European powers would typically concentrate force to attempt to end piracy um, in a particular area. So I mentioned before the royal uh, pardon that was offered by the King of England. Uh, this is in this is in in really 1718 and 1719. Governor Eden of North Carolina was the agent of the king to give those um, to give those out the pardons out to people who would renounce a life of piracy and never return, you know, to the pirate's life. Now, not not too many of them actually were successful in giving up. A pirate's life because it was something that I guess was somewhat intoxicating uh, to them. They would they would bring in a fleet. Uh, they would bring in a fleet of warships that would regularly patrol an area if it was being overrun by pirates. It was in the 17 I'm trying to remember exactly. I believe it was in the 1740s. Um, Spanish piracy was becoming a tremendous problem in the English colonies, especially in the colony of South Carolina. And there was one Spanish pirate named Don Francisco Lorenzo who operated out of Havana and St. Augustine. And in one 18-month period, he captured 56 trading ships that were coming out of the ports of Charleston and Beaufort and Savannah. And he almost single-handedly shut down the indigo economy of the colony of South Carolina by virtue of all the ships that he captured. And what happened in that case was the uh, governor of South Carolina, with backup from the Royal Navy, ended up putting up patrols that would keep him from plying his trade. And then they put a former pirate hunter, a man who had, who had achieved great fame in, the, in shutting down Blackbeard in 1718, 1719, sent him after Lorenzo and ended up capturing Lorenzo off the coast of uh, Nassau in the Bahamas. And that ended for that period of time, that ended the threat of piracy in, in the Port Royal Sound area for sure and on the coast of South Carolina. It wasn't really until, um, you know, the presence of enough of the colonial, well, not colonial, but the new states and the navies and the militias and the 
sizes of the colonies had and the cities had increased to the point that pirates were much less able to ply their trade with impunity and the practice of piracy kind of uh, slacked off for quite a while in this part of the world. What happened to all that treasure? Did they spend it all? Is there a pirate bounty buried throughout the southeastern United States beaches? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people believe that there is there is plenty of pirate bounty. So the piracy took place both at sea and it took place on land when ships at, you know, in port would sometimes be raided and, and boarded by pirate crews. And the wealth from those ships would be onloaded to the pirate ships and then taken off somewhere nearby. And when they took it off nearby, it was either able to be somehow spent in nearby ports or in other cases where they were concerned that they would be pursued now by patrol boats for being so brazen as to do something like that, that they were rumored to have buried treasure in many places. There were some pirates are much more thought to have buried treasure than others. And Blackbeard just happens to be one of those who believe to have, have buried a lot of treasure. Most of that was due to the fact that he and Steed Bonnet planned to go up to North Carolina to receive their royal pardons. But they were fearful that the offer of a royal pardon was really a ruse that would lead to their being captured and imprisoned. So before they departed the Port Royal Sound area to head up to North Carolina to get the pardon, they were said to have taken much of the treasure off the Queen Anne's Revenge, which had been loaded with treasure prior to that point, and have buried it somewhere on an island in the Port Royal Sound. So we've got people over the years have looked on Hilton Head and other Port Royal Islands for Blackbeard's fabled treasure, but no traces of it have ever been found. No artifacts that would even indicate that pirate and treasure were in the area have, have really turned up much in, in these parts. So I guess the answer is uh, pirate crews were ready to spend whatever they had when they went into port, and they were in port for relatively short periods of time compared to their time at sea. So fast and furious was the spending and the merriment. And, uh, you know, for more purposeful pirates, the thought that they might have had a treasure trove where they buried a lot of the wealth that they had accumulated in their raiding of ships is not a far-fetched thought at all. Well, just a reminder for everybody listening, you're allowed a small plastic shovel and you're only allowed to dig one <laughs> foot deep on any Hilton Head beach. And when you leave the beach, you need to fill that hole in so we don't kill all the sea turtles. So if you're out there listening and you think you're going to go dig for pirate treasure on Hilton Head Island, go somewhere else because you're not doing it here. <laughs> good advice. I think that's really good advice. Rich, thank you so much. This is just a fascinating topic, and we really, Thanks, really, Jay. really appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. If you enjoy history, look for Rich's book, Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina, at the forefront of American history. There are some fascinating stories in it. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to subscribe and leave a review. You can also reach us at contact at 278tolighthouseroad.com. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. We will see you next time as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road.